Hey, I'm Amanda from Trifecta Fitness. We're proud to be Clarksville's new Get Fit headquarters. Trifecta Fitness is a state-of-the-art spin and strength training studio. Our spin studio is truly one of a kind in this area, complete with 20 state-of-the-art live fitness bikes and an incredible sound system. Our strength training is done in small groups of six or fewer, and all of our strength and spin classes are scalable for every level of experience. Come see us in the heart of Clarksville, just behind Mapco at the corner of Old Trenton Road and Wilma Rudolph Boulevard. Call us for more info at 931-542-6265 or download our Trifecta Fitness app for a full list of upcoming classes. In October 2019, Arlington, Texas was chosen to be the home of a new national museum, unlike any other. The National Medal of Honor Museum will be a unique home of military history. The 100,000 square foot museum will house exhibits, archives, and artifacts relating to the 3,500 U.S. troops who have been awarded the medal, the nation's highest honor for valor in combat. The museum will have 31,000 square feet of galleries dedicated to U.S. troops who have received the award. The museum CEO, former Navy SEAL and NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy said the museum will focus on education as much as preservation. The building will have five areas dedicated to Medal of Honor winners from the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard. The main gallery will be located in a central plaza under a 25,000 square foot slab of steel, which will appear to be suspended in midair. It will be supported by five pillars. Black Rifle Coffee is a corporate sponsor of the museum, as are the Dallas Cowboys. The museum's board also includes over a dozen major corporations and six Medal of Honor recipients, including David Bellavia, Patrick Brady, and Britt Slabinski. Army Staff Sergeant Bellavia was awarded the medal for clearing an entire house by himself on November 10, 2004, as a squad leader in support of Operation Phantom Fury in Fallujah, Iraq. He killed four enemy fighters and wounded a fifth in close quarters battle. Army Major General Brady flew and coordinated the evacuation of 51 seriously wounded men during a firefight in Vietnam in January 1968. Slabinski, a Navy SEAL chief and team leader, led a rescue team of SEALs during Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan in March 2002. Slabinski and his team flew to a mountaintop ambush site to rescue Petty Officer First Class Neil Roberts, who had fallen from the back of a helicopter. Slabinski led the team through almost constant combat against an entrenched Taliban force. Along with the board members, former presidents Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama serve as honorary directors. The museum is expected to open to the public in late 2024. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Fit Nation. We are a show founded by a veteran and hosted by two veterans and a military spouse. Our mission is to get people to tell their story to the world. If you're an author, share your tips with Ms. Fitnation. If you're a musician or actor, our audience needs to know how they too can get into the business. Coaches, we love our coaches. Come on and share some of your tips with the Misfit Nation to help them become better versions of themselves. If you're a corporate leader or an entrepreneur, come on and share how you did it and how hard you have fought for success. If you are a veteran, first responder, or Gold Star family, we would love to have you come on and just share your story with the Misfit Nation. We always have time for you. If you're feeling down, alone, or starting to see the darkness, stop. 
Think about those who are around you. You are not alone. You will be missed. If you feel like your problems will be a burden to those in your inner circle or are embarrassed, dial 988. If you are a veteran, take option one. We need you to keep pushing forward. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Misfit Nation. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps and also on our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. Subscribe and click the bell to keep you up to date with our latest episodes and all of our news. You can also find us on Heroes Media Group and About Face Radio. Now, let's get to the show. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to our Thursday night live show coming to you live this week from Ottawa, Illinois. Yes, that's right. The Misfits on the road again, uh, staying on the road constantly for our, our day gig, but always keeping you guys in mind. On the road today, as we started our journey, we looked out the front windshield and we seen the majestic bald eagle. Flew in front of us, dove down and got its prey. Nothing like seeing the price of freedom right in front of your face as an eagle gets his gets his snack for the day. That that motivated us for the rest of our ride. Now on to our guest. He's been a professor of management for 30 plus years. He's taught courses in organizational behavior and NHR and consulted with many companies. His experience makes him a good interview because he's knowledgeable about many business and psychological topics. Recently, he just did a study on veterans and resilience which I'd love to uh, hear his take on that, which our audience, you guys all know that all too well. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Tom Becker to the Misfit Nation. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Rich. I am honored to be here, truly. Uh, it was awesome. It's awesome to have you here. And uh, I, I don't want to dive uh, right in, but our, right before we went live, me and you were talking about your dad and uh, that uh, brought chill bumps throughout my body, uh, knowing what he was able to uh, live through and see and, uh, and I guess, uh, share with you throughout his life. And uh, I, I want to thank you for uh, sharing that with me. And I would love for you to share some of that with the Misfit Nation, along with a lot more about your life, of course, because I only gave you about a, a two-sentence brief about you right there. So if you want to dive into a little bit about that and more about you, that'd be great right now for the Misfit Nation. Be happy to. Listen, one reason I was interested in coming on your show, Rich, is um, you know, my father was a veteran. Uh, he was uh, in Pearl Harbor, at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941 for that in, uh, incredible and horrible event. Uh, he was uh, at a sub uh, station right across the harbor from uh, where the Japanese were bombing the cruisers. Uh, and so there wasn't a whole lot they could do about it. He, he told stories about, you know, manning a uh, 50 caliber machine gun and shooting at the uh, planes. But, you know, unfortunately they were uh, too far away for anybody to do much, uh, uh, do much good. But uh, yeah, that, that dramatically affect him. I'm sure in some good ways and uh, without question in some negative ways, as you know, you might imagine it's a uh, tremendously uh, traumatic event to, to witness such a thing. But uh, yeah, I was telling you, I think, Rich, that he traveled around a lot, of course, being in the Navy. He had stories about, you know, trudging across Egypt at one point. Uh, they were on shore leave there. Uh, and to this day, I have a, a, a naval ring that he had from the Navy days, and I had it sized to fit, uh, fit my finger. And I've worn that with pride uh, many times. So 
Yeah, uh, the uh, the relevance of veterans in our family is uh, runs pretty deep. His uh, his two brothers, a sister and a cousin, uh, were also in the Navy at the same time he was in the St. Louis Post Dispatch. I'm from Missouri. Uh, ran an article on them because they had so many people uh, from the same family in the Navy. So yeah, that's kind of my my uh, heritage and uh, something I'm proud of the the service that they've done over the years. But yeah, I've been a college professor, as you said, for a long time. I love teaching. I love doing research. And uh, I'd really be uh, happy to talk to you a little bit about that study of veterans' resiliency and how it affects their health and maybe even more important, um, the goals that they have for their health in the future. Oh, definitely. That, that Like I said in the pre-show, when, uh, that's something that piqued my interest when you had that in your, uh, your Calendly invite. You said that on there, and uh, I thought that was a, when it was just – you only put like a, a little quick blurb on that at the bottom, so that should have been the first thing you wrote. Okay. I've been great. Uh, yeah. The rest of it, I mean, the rest of it's awesome. I'm, I'm currently uh, pursuing my doctorate, so I'll be hopefully within the next uh, – 16 months, I'll, I'll be able to call myself Dr. LaMonica as well. Wow, that's great, man. And so I'll, I'll be able to field that dream too and, uh, and kind of be a, a, a lower, uh, I guess, a sub-peer to you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I I don't think of uh, anybody any, any longer as sub-peers. I think when you first get your degree, it's like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a mighty PhD, but you know, of course, you're just like anybody else. And I think you find out something about people uh, in terms of how they treat uh, other individuals uh, based on, you know, whatever level of education they might have attained. I've always seen that as extremely shallow. So hopefully we get a little more humility uh, as uh, life goes on. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I also I lived in uh, St. Louis for a year. Uh, I worked there the year after I got out of the military. I got a job there, so I worked down right downtown for a year for a, a nonprofit organization called the Mission Mission Continues, uh, helping the veterans as they transitioned into the civilian world. Oh, so cool. I was able to see the host uh, dispatch there a few times. Oh yeah, I was there. So so when you said that, oh, that rings a bell too. <laughs> Lots of connections. Yeah. So so Tom, if you want to talk about the study you did with the resilience of veterans, that'd be great, and that way it'll pique some more questions. Sure. Uh, yeah, I got involved with this because there was a guy at the University of South Florida uh, where I worked uh, who was a Marine veteran, and uh, he had, uh, had a student that was interested in doing a paper on uh, resiliency, uh, basically meaning uh, the ability of somebody to bounce back from adversity, and, uh, and that just got us all thinking about it. Uh, and uh, that led to us designing a study uh, to look at the resiliency of veterans, which was kind of a natural fit because Florida, as you probably know, has got a lot of veterans. Uh, and I'm in Sarasota County. Sarasota Manatee counties have more veterans than any uh, other counties in Florida. So it's really a uh, a great place to uh, meet and interact with and uh, talk with veterans. So, you know, we had a number of interviews with vets. Based on those interviews, we designed a survey uh, that went out and we collected 1,868 surveys from veterans uh, from uh, all, uh, all over the county, uh, all branches of the military, uh, males, females, 
blacks, whites, a really kind of good cross section of uh, people. And basically we had a theory going forward, which was mostly supported. You know, you're probably learning this now in a, in a doctoral program, no theory is ever hundred percent, right? Yes. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> could be absolute. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, overall it did pretty well. We were, what really interest, interested us was, you know, it had already been shown, not surprisingly, more resilient people uh, end up um, overcoming adversity better and faster and, and therefore don't suffer the, uh, the health effects from that adversity as much as somebody else. Uh, I really want to say, and this is, is so important, maybe to many of your uh, listeners, Rich, that um, when we look at resiliency, it's not a judgment of the individual. It's not like, oh, you're better because, you know, you were able to bounce back faster. There's a huge number of reasons why somebody uh, might bounce back faster or slower than somebody else. So I, I really wanted to say that up front because I think sometimes when you talk about research like this, it's like, oh, okay, so people who are resilient are somehow better than those who are less resilient. And, and that's really not the case. So, yeah, so we were interested in why uh, and, you know, through what process does resiliency uh, result in better health outcomes uh, than uh, other folks. And we had two basic ideas. One is if you're resilient, let's say at time one right now, if you're a highly resilient, uh, meaning that you've got probably a variety of psychological resources, like you've got good self-esteem, uh, you're reasonably confident that you can take on many of the challenges of life. You feel like you've got some degree uh, of control over things. Uh, not everything, of course, but, you know, that you're, you're as much of an origin as a pawn uh, in life. Those psychological uh, characteristics lend people a certain amount of resiliency. So the question then was, how does that affect how they look at life? with respect to these outcomes we're interested in. And basically it boiled down to two things. One is people who are more resilient, they, when something bad happens, they actually see it as less bad than do other people witnessing the same event. Um, you know, there's extreme adversity, like I think Pearl Harbor is a good example, where nobody is sitting there as a Pollyanna going, well, let's look on the bright side. You know, there's no bright, there's no bright side. This is just, this is just awful. Um, but a lot of times in life, you know, let's say um, you don't get promoted at work or uh, you have some kind of conflict with a friend or a significant other. Um, you know, let's say that, Rich, that you're really resilient and I'm not so much. You might look at something like not getting the promotion as, okay, well, this is just a sign that I need to work harder and it's an opportunity for me to go out and figure out uh, what skills do I need to develop so I can, you know, next time I can move ahead. If I'm less resilient, I look at that exact same event and I'm like, okay, I guess I'm just not smart enough, uh, you know, this is pretty consistent with my experience. Life kind of sucks in general. So, so it's how you appraise that adversity. And people higher in, in resilience look at it. And uh, I guess the, kind of the corny way to say it is uh, they're just more optimistic. They're more hopeful about things. So they call that appraised adversity in the academic world. But to me, it's just, 
you know, looking at and evaluating something uh, as, uh, as more positive than somebody else uh, might. And then the other part, the other way that resiliency affects health outcomes is it has a direct effect on life satisfaction in general. People who are more resilient uh, are more satisfied with their life. And it's probably for the same reason I was just describing that, you know, they see life as uh, more opportunities than threats, more um Again, it's not like they've got the rose-colored glasses on necessarily. They're not saying something terrible is good, but they're looking at something that could be interpreted in multiple ways, and when possible, they kind of take the more optimistic road. Is that, am I making sense so far? Yes, sir. You're making perfect sense right there. <laughs> All, right. All right, good. You just tell me if I'm not, because uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not 25 anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a lot of us are. <laughs> So yeah, so so let's take it one step further. So a resilient person appraises adversity as positively as it meaningfully can without being ridiculous. Uh, they're more satisfied with their life in general, although certainly bad things can happen to them. And because of these, these things, their physical and mental health tends to be uh, better, okay? And this is acknowledging that there's certainly in kind of a nature nurture thing going on. You know, somebody can uh, suffer from mental health problems or issues um, for a variety of reasons. But when it comes to resiliency, it seems to be through this process of I evaluate things more positively and I'm more satisfied with life. So that's not too surprising, I guess. Uh, I doubt if many of your uh, listeners are going, wow, that's a shock. You know, more resilient people are... Uh, you know, physically healthier and don't suffer as much uh, mentally. But the more important part of what we found uh, is that it's not just how resiliency affects the individual right now. It affects how they set goals for the future and the commitment that they have to those goals. So that makes it kind of an ongoing uh, effect rather than, you know, kind of a snapshot or a you know, just a cross section of my life. Uh, yeah, so that's that to me is like the most hopeful thing. Uh, and I say hopeful in particular because there's a bunch of research that I did not do, but is, is published and available that shows that resiliency is not just something you're born with or stuck with at a given point in time. It is something that can be developed uh, and even trained. There's training programs that organizations do. And I know in the military, I can't cite you the uh, article off the top of my head, but I know they've done resiliency training in the military. And the studies show that uh, at least to a certain degree, any individual's resiliency can be increased through training and development. So that's good news for them, not only in terms of health, but in uh, how they live their lives going forward. Definitely. And I, I, the military does things uh, a lot of ways to build your resiliency. Uh, one way is through uh, classwork or uh, through, uh, I guess, conference style learning. And other ways is just through the sheer training you do, the mm -hmm. amount of training you do and learning how to fall down and get back up. And yeah, right. you know you're not going to always be 100 percent successful because, like we said earlier, not everything is absolute. Not It's not even in the real world. Everything's not absolute. And uh, you have to learn to when you fall, you bruise your knee, you bruise your ego. You got to get back up, brush it off, and 
and keep charging forward. If you keep looking backwards, you'll never be able to move forward. And mm -hmm. it's a lot harder to take that anchor off you if it's it's still stuck behind you. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great way of putting it, Rich. Um, I think, um, you know, probably in boot camp, adversity is something that happens every day. So you, you, get, you get a massive dose of adversity. Uh, and uh, one thing that I think is proven to be true also, uh, kind, of, kind of by common sense and by research, is that, uh, you know, going through adversity and coming out the other side builds resiliency in such a way that you become more confident. So, it, you know, it can ratchet it up. And it's not just like positive self-talk or, you know, uh, ignoring the weeds in the garden and hoping they'll go away. It's like, no, I actually, I actually did it. You know, I mean, I know that I did that. So it's not like just, you know, putting a positive spin on something. Definitely. And uh, I like you said, the weeds in the garden. Yeah, so you got to get through the weeds, to get through the trees and such or through the grass. And uh, a lot of people get stuck in those weeds and it's hard to get out of it. And like yeah. you said, it, for some people, it comes naturally for some people to be resilient. And you say naturally, but it it comes through life, life lessons. You may you may feel like that. Oh, that kid there, he, he was so resilient growing up, but it's because something happened in his life yeah. from age zero to whatever. Yeah. that made that person have that thick skin and maybe able to push forward and say, it doesn't matter what happened to yesterday. Today is what matters. And I need to. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And there's so much that must feed into that. I don't think anybody fully understands, you know, kind of the origin or the essence of resiliency early on, how much of it is, you know, related to something genetic. Uh, to me, a lot of it has got to be, the experiences that people have. I mean, even as a kid, like you're saying, Rich, uh, it, being having role models nearby uh, who you look up to, who have shown, you know, when they get, you can see they get knocked down and they may not like it. They may complain, they may cuss, but they get back up. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so I think that's an important, uh, important thing to be able to see and and not not everybody has that opportunity so that's again that's why i say it's not somebody's fault at all if they end up you know having to develop their resiliency later on or kind of hitting a wall or having difficulties um, not all of us were lucky enough to have those role models so definitely and uh one of our listeners uh jake just uh chimed in here he said best uh what are the best practices for teaching children how to be resilient in your mind yeah, that's that's a great question. Was that Jake? Yeah, Jake. Jake, that's that really is a great question. Um, I know I've read uh, articles that the whole concept of resiliency came out of um, studies of children. That was like in in the psychological literature. That's where it really began. Um, and so one thing is uh, the the kind of intentional. Uh, experience and giving the experience of adversity to kids. And that's, you got to be very careful about that. You're not going to, you know, uh, tell uh, a three-year-old that, you know, they got to go to the gym and bench 200 pounds or something like that. But, you know, if they, if they're, if they're, you know, going through that period where they're walking and they fall down, hold on for a minute, let them try to get up themselves if they need some help, you know, you can lend it, but let them try before uh, before you uh, do something for them. Uh, I think that's a great way to develop 
uh, kit. I think it's outstanding. Yeah, let them. Uh, I guess, uh, like you're saying, let, do a trial and uh, experiential learning for them as they go, and uh, they'll learn. And they'll learn. They'll keep putting their hand on the hot pot, and yeah, they'll figure it out. So, <laughs> yeah. There's only so many times you can tell a kid not to do something before they realize it's not a good idea, and I guess that builds resiliency too. <laughs> well, you know, you've. I don't want to get into a big stereotype here of any given generation because I've been teaching, like you said, for 30 years, and I've seen students from uh, multiple generations and in every cohort of student, you know, some of them are lazy. Some of them are, you know, immensely hard workers. Some of them are super bright. Some of them not so much. You see the whole spectrum right there in front of you. Uh, But one thing you hear kind of pretty often is uh, that uh, recent generations are kind of spoiled and they're not willing to work and they got the helicopter parents and all that. I can't really, you know, from a scientific point of view or given studies, I can't really speak to that. But I can say if it's true that you've got uh, a generation of uh, people who seem the way some people would put it, they seem soft, you know, they can't handle much adversity, uh, that it does fall uh, at least partially on the parents because, you know, part of your job, I think, as a parent is, uh, to help your kid be strong so they can go through life and, uh, and uh, you know, deal with all the stuff that gets thrown at all of us. Right. And uh, my, my brother chimed in uh, here. He said, so basically we stop bubble wrapping the kids and let them fall, let them do the things. Like, yeah. I mean, we, we were growing up. It was uh, go outside and come back when the lights come on. Don't, <laughs> don't come in. Like, yeah. yeah. And that was some things that happened to us. So one yeah. time he, he, uh, Hit me in the face with a skateboard right up right below the eye uh it was, it, it's we laugh about it now but yeah it, i came in the house bleeding my mother made me take my shirt off because she didn't want me to ruin my shirt <laughs> or get blood on the on in the house yeah. and then sent me right back outside yeah. it wasn't time yet to come in yeah <laughs> so, you know, these were different times. these were different yeah. times right um i if i would have worn a bicycle helmet <laughs> school when I was a kid, I would have gotten beaten up on the playground. <laughs> That's the first thing I thought of when you said that. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying to anybody, don't wear bicycle helmets. Hey, wear helmets. But I'm just that—that that was a different time. You know, that was a different time. Uh, and you know, yeah, I used to ride to school, uh, to high school, like five miles on a bike, and you know, there'd be these great next to the roads, there's cars wasn't by, and there's these grates that if your tire was too thin, it could get caught in the grates and <laughs> nobody cared. He was like, yeah, just go out and do it. So uh, anyway, different he'll, time. He'll be all right. He'll be all right. <laughs> he'll learn. So we, you also, you've been teaching management uh, in a, on that side, on the business side for a long time. What are some trends you see for business uh, development now for growth in business for a lot of our listeners are also entrepreneurs, so I call them entrepreneurs. Yeah. How do they grow their business and build that management style along the lines with resilience in the business? Yeah, that is a, actually a really deep question because there's so much uh, that you have to uh, deal with when you decide to start your own business. Uh, I, I'm right there with your audience because uh, I started a firm called Stratify, a small talent management firm. Uh, I've got uh six people that I work with. Uh, they're really independent contractors, not employees. Uh, but, you know, we're just trying to get the thing off the ground and it's massive hours, you know, you put in 
so, yeah, I, I would say some of the key things are uh, to make it as an entrepreneur. Everybody says, you know, funding is critical. And it is. You know, most of us, uh, if you're young, you go to family and friends and try to just scare up enough money. Um, if uh, you're a little older, like I am, you know, you've got some saved and you jump into it. Uh, but I think the resiliency piece of it is so critical. In fact, I'll give you one more uh, give you one more study uh, that I was involved with uh, that kind of stresses that point. Uh, I was working with a guy named John Cabongo at the University of South Florida. John is uh, uh, grew up uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo for part of his life. Uh, he then uh, became a naturalized uh, citizen here in the U.S. and uh, we decided to do a study of entrepreneurial resilience in sub-Saharan Africa, specifically Ghana and uh, South Africa. So we're like, okay, first we got to translate all the uh, surveys. Um, so we work with two professors uh, in Africa, in, the, in Ghana and South Africa, uh, and they had uh, research assistants and we collected uh, data from Oh God, don't, don't hold me to the numbers on this one. Uh, I'll just say hundreds. I know for sure it was hundreds. Hundreds of entrepreneurs uh, in those two countries. And some of these entrepreneurs were in so-called survival ventures, meaning you know they literally were selling their wares on the street with just some family members uh, helping out. Some of, them, some of them had more established uh, businesses. So we collected that data from them at time one. And Unbeknownst to us, time one was right before COVID. So we collected data on resiliency at time one. COVID hits and, hey, disaster. But from the, from the research point of view, it was like, okay, now everybody is experiencing massive adversity. Where is resilience supposed to matter the most when there's a lot of adversity? So then we had measures of the motivation of entrepreneurs in those two countries uh, and uh, the, uh, whether or not they continued their businesses. And we found uh, that resiliency prior to COVID predicted uh, post-COVID success in terms of the uh, motivation and commitment of entrepreneurs uh, and uh, the well-being of their families uh, and the success of their business. So, yeah, without question, resiliency plays a huge role given the number of barriers that you got to deal with as an entrepreneur. Definitely. And uh, not thinking of it, I was an entrepreneur when I started this show. I was thinking of it as something to do during the COVID time. I started this show. And it, when you start things like this, you don't realize what you're doing, that it actually is a, a small business as you start growing it. Yeah. And I had to learn and grow as I went along. And being resilient really helped me to fight through everything and get to where I am now and be able to do live shows and talk with you and, and talk about resilience now. Yeah. So it really helps out to push through, I think, to be successful and understand that you're going to have hiccups. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have good days. You got to ride those waves and get on the other side. Yeah, no question. And I think the good side to it, besides, you know, you're hoping that your business will be successful. The great side to it is, if you pick the right sort of business to go in, meaning the one that fits you, uh, you're doing work that you actually love or that you find interesting at least, that 
the long days, the long hours, they go by pretty quick. Yes. I don't know. I don't know what your experiences are, but you know, I am definitely drinking from the fire hose right now. You know, I, I feel like, okay, I had the college professor thing down pretty well, but then you say, okay, now I'm going to start. I had done consulting all along the way, Rich. Uh, you know, I worked with Procter and Gamble. I worked actually uh, with the U S army, uh, the FBI, uh, called me in on a project uh, that had to do with uh, measuring integrity. So I had all these cool consulting gigs uh, as I was a college professor. Uh, and a lot of times the consulting and the research kind of went hand in hand, right? But now it's like, okay, now you're 100% consulting and you got to learn a lot more than I knew about you know marketing and how to get on LinkedIn, uh, and do everything that you can do on LinkedIn, even about finding uh, uh, how to do podcasts like this one, Rich. So, uh, yeah, without question, uh, it's been uh, it's been an experience, but it helps when you love it. Right. Yeah. When, when you're passionate about something, I think it really helps it become easy. Like so when you're talking about the long days that, that just fly by, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I do my day job. I do this. I'm also doing my doctoral studies. So my days are pretty packed right now, and uh, like I have about six hours of sleep that I'm allowed to have, but I only get about four anyway. So, wow. and then then I write back at it. So it's yeah. it's just a daily thing for me. I'm I'm so used to just being busy from my time wearing uh, boots and suits yeah. that it just doesn't. It, right now, it's just this seems like fun to me. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. So with a business, especially uh, hiring and uh, hiring and main, uh, I guess. Uh, keeping good talent, how does that help or hurt the, the manager? How do they uh, tackle the hiring and keeping a good talent and vice the poor talent that, that that's out there in the pool right now? Yeah, you know, I did an audio event, a LinkedIn audio event just this afternoon uh, that was titled Employment Tests, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And I had a panel of experts on there, uh, three three people, and the four of us um, discuss the, the key issues in employment testing and hiring people. Uh, and I think that's really relevant to your question because uh, so many small businesses struggle with talent management. It's not because uh, the people involved, that is the owners, the entrepreneurs, it's not because they're not smart enough. It's not because they're not willing to work hard enough. They just don't, they don't have the background or training and knowledge about what's the best way to hire people. So a lot of small businesses today still uh, use unstructured job interviews uh, where they sit down for 15 or 20 minutes and basically chat with interviewees. Uh, many of the questions may not be job related. Uh, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but I think actually all of us think we're really great judges of character. Uh, <laughs> And so based on a 15-minute discussion, I can tell whether or not you're going to be a great employee. Not surprisingly, it doesn't work out too well. And um, the two kinds of errors that you're almost fated to make, no matter how you're hiring people, is they call them you know, false positives and false negatives, right? So the false positive, that's real obvious. That's the person you hire that turns out to be the big social loafer, uh, or, you know, just not cutting it. And there they are right in front of you. And you're going, why did I hire, you know, so-and-so. But the other type of error is just as bad, maybe even worse in some cases. That's the person that you didn't hire that you should have hired. 
Now think about what happens there. That that person goes to work for a competitor of yours and ends up being a superstar, right? This is like, I'm trying to remember the, the basketball team. I think it was Houston uh, who passed on Michael Jordan uh, on the first round pick. Uh, and he ended up going, of course, to the Bulls. I'm just trying to imagine how I would feel if I said, <laughs> I don't know, he's good, but, you know, so-and-so is better. It just didn't work out for him. But, yeah, I think those kinds of errors are really uh, harmful, especially to small businesses, because, you know, you make a couple of bad hiring decisions, that can be fatal if you're running a small business. So what do you do? The good news is uh, there is a ton of evidence on better ways to hire people. I'll just can I give you three examples? Definitely. Yeah. So uh, the bad news about the traditional interview, the way it's normally done, is it's a terrible predictor of job performance. The good news is you can structure interviews in a way that they're much, much more valid. Uh, can't get into all the details here, but uh, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. First thing that's got to happen is, you know, you've, you've got a decent job analysis that shows you here's the task, duties, and responsibilities for that job, and here's the, you know, skills needed to do that job. If you've got that, um, then you can... Uh, ask job-related questions that are going to be pertinent to, you know, the performance of, uh, of that position. Uh, you also need to standardize the questions that you're asking. So, you know, if I ask you questions one, two, and three, and I ask the next person questions four, five, and six, how do I compare the two of you? Right. Totally different, you know, domains, right? So, yeah, you can make them better. The, the second thing I would say is for almost any position, using a cognitive ability test is a good idea. Um, they've been studied really widely. It's not, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, oh, you got to hire all geniuses or, you know, anything like that. It's just, but in general, people who are smarter, I'll just say it in everyday language, people who are smarter, who have uh, in, in, academic jargon, have higher cognitive ability, they just acquire job knowledge faster. Um, so in general, it's a pretty good predictive job performance. Uh, that's not to say it's even better than motivation, but at the starting point, those folks have a, a leg up. The other thing I would say is it's really important to measure integrity or ethical principles. It's hard to do, but it's so, so important because th the worst thing that can happen is if you think about it, you're running a small business and you got somebody who's really smart, but they're dishonest. Wow. You know, somebody who's not so smart and they're dishonest, hopefully you'll catch them or something. You know, <laughs> you got, uh, uh, you got a uh, Bernie Madoff working for you. Oh, wow. you know? <laughs> Super smart guy, but you know, rather low on the integrity factor, you know? So yeah, I would say, you know, structured interviews, uh, cognitive ability and an integrity test will really give you a leg up over most uh, small businesses. Uh, and it's possible to measure all three of those things in a way that, uh, that provides uh, input into making better decisions and therefore uh, better retention as well as job performance. Definitely. And you talk about uh, inclusive, the uh, integrity, and then you keeping a diverse workplace and having an integrity within the, the uh, interview process. 
Yeah. Uh, recently, I guess within the last five or six years, you had the diversity, uh, inclusive inclusivity, and the equal employment DEI, DIE uh, within the workplace. Do you think that uh, kind of separate or segregates the workplace, or can you do that and keep unity within your workplace as well? You know, this is like one of the most difficult questions our society is facing right now. <laughs> That's why you asked, right? That's why you asked. Uh, yeah, but I, I do have an opinion on that. I think uh, there's nothing wrong with the intention of having a diverse workforce uh, so long as you're defining diversity uh, broadly. I mean, if you're just trying to fill quotas, I don't th think that serves anybody's uh, interests in the long run. I really don't. Uh, especially, I would say, the person who was hired under the quota system. You know, if you tell me I was hired just because uh, I was Hispanic or just because I was a female or just because whatever it is, right? Um, that's not going to be great for anyone, including me. Uh, I like the idea, and this is an idea that a friend of mine, Ed Locke, uh, who's a professor emeritus at University of Maryland put forward, he said, the idea of diversity, uh, the intention is fine, but really where you want to head is individuality awareness, right? Because the smallest uh, group is a group of one, an individual, and nobody, well, I can't speak for everybody. Very few of us, I believe, want to be just known as a member of some group. Uh, part of our identity very well might be I'm a member of these social groups. You know, in my case, I'm white, I'm male. Somebody else, I'm black, I'm female. We may attach importance to those uh, so-called uh, surface features of us. Uh, but if that's all somebody knows about you, uh, they don't know you. You know, to know somebody is to know them individually. So individuality awareness would mean we respect uh the differences among individuals uh, at the individual level. We're not just, you know, pigeonholing people into groups. And I know it's a huge controversy. I know it's a, there's people that I'm sure would, would hate me for saying that. Uh, but I think eventually that's where we need to get is where, uh, you know, as Martin Luther King said, you know, we're in a colorblind society um, and uh, we look at the characteristics of the individuals. Uh, we're not there yet, and I'm sure Martin Luther King, were he alive, would say uh, it's still a dream. But uh, nevertheless, I think keeping your eye on the ball and looking at uh, what the ultimate goal is, is important. Definitely. And I think the, we keep labeling everything or labeling each individual into different categories. That creates that uh, divide amongst people because uh, you're this, you're X, you're Y, you're Z. And that's why I have you here. And that, I think that causes that strife within the workplace and amongst those three people as well. So if you just say, hey, you're here to do this job, you're doing it well, let's work together to make a be successful as a team. And we'll do this uh, as a team and work to the finish line. That I think would be better. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, the, the biggest difficulty I think we kind of face is that there seems to be an almost evolutionary tendency uh, for us and them, you know, that, will, you know, in an evolutionary sense, 
You know, we traveled in small groups. You go back to prehistoric times. Uh, and we did that for safety reasons. We still do it in platoons, you know, and things like that. So we do that for strategic reasons, but that automatically creates a boundary, right? It's us and them. Uh, and people will do it even along the most ridiculous uh, lines. They've done research on this in social identity theory and uh, research. Uh, people will group themselves on the basis of, if, if you leave them to, the, to do this, they'll group themselves on the basis of uh, the letter that their first name starts with. You know, I mean, it, it's totally random, but we feel like we got to have an us. We got to have an us and we got to have a them, you know? And uh, that's, I think ultimately that's what we're battling is we just have this incredible tendency uh, to, to group up in that way. I believe so too, and the and it kind of we used to call I guess in high school called clicks or whatever, and it yeah. it was the or like in, in way back you had the poshes the socias whatever, and it, it just it just it just has evolved throughout time, and those clicks have just become different types of clicks, and yeah. it, if you watch any high any movie on high schools you'll you'll see the same thing, and yeah. it just gets the same thing over and over again just with different names. Yeah, and, that's. And it's the same thing in a workplace. You go to those people who make you feel more comfortable or you're more comfortable with them. And it's hard for some people to be comfortable with everyone because that's not their, they have some kind of anxiety or something within them that creates that, uh, I guess, barrier to, for them to become close to others. And that I think also hurts with the closeness of a work unit. Yes. So that's another obstacle for the small business owner. It definitely is. There was a guy, God, I, I'm blocking on his name at the University of Delaware, who uh, devoted much of his career to studying this issue of kind of groupism. And uh, one thing that he came to believe after uh, after years of research uh, was that the only way to overcome that us versus them mentality is to uh, have someone with leadership skills that could convince people that yeah, you might think of us as two different groups, uh, but we're all same of the larger entity, you know? So, yeah, we're two different groups, but we're the same because we're part of the larger group, right? And I think that's where leadership becomes so, so essential, uh, being able to, even though uh, people are different and pigeons, pigeonhole other people as being different, a great leader is able to promote the unity without uh, trying to pretend like uh, these differences don't exist or uh, trying to get people to uh, uh, overcome the idea that we are in certain groups. Definitely. And I think that's a, that'd be a win for any leader in any, any level of business to Absolutely. be able to break that barrier down. Yeah, no doubt. And staying on the topic of leadership or management, right, they say that the best time to find a job is when you have a job. So how do you get you get this great employee in there and you know every employee is always looking for a way up unless they're just so comfortable where they are, a way up or a way out. Yeah. How do you you I mean you gotta allow that if you you if you handcuff and say no, don't look for other jobs, that's just saying, Hey, I don't want to work here because you're kind of like this dictator telling me what I have to do. Yeah. How do you allow that but also foster the foster that ability, but also fosters, hey, I I encourage you to do that, but we'll take care of you here. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so Gallup, uh, the Gallup organization has uh, pulled people for years on why they leave 
their workplaces. The number one reason time and time again is basically I hate my boss. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, even if you're saying, yeah, the company's good. My pay's good. I get along with my, co- my boss is just an idiot or my boss is just a jerk or, you know, whatever it is, that's the number one thing. So I, you know, what does that suggest? It suggests being real careful about who you put in, uh, uh, leadership positions or who you hire as managers uh, and making sure that you train and develop those people so they know uh, how, you know, they know that they have the interpersonal skills uh, to uh, pull people together. And that's that's not going to keep everybody. Of course, no matter what you, you do, some people are going to leave. But you know, you can keep people, more of the good people on if you have good leadership within the organization. Uh, the other thing that's really critical is uh, fairness. And they, uh, you know, in my field, they have broken this down into several different kinds. Um, but when you design a compensation package, there's a lot of things you have to think about. You know, is it fair uh, with respect to, you know, my, is my pay fair compared to people doing different jobs in the same organization? Right. So there's a whole technique to establishing that called job evaluation, you know, paying people, paying different jobs based on their relative importance to the company. Then the other thing is just, you know, doing a good job establishing the market rate of pay. A lot of times you lose employees if it's because of pay. You lose them because they can go down the street or in this case around the world anywhere nowadays uh, and uh, do the same thing for considerably more money. So you can't, if you're a business, you can't necessarily always pay more than all the other businesses, but you can, what you wanna do is be able to hire and retain the best people you can, given the amount that you have uh, to spend on hiring, right? So, I mean, money's a factor, but that's really important. You know, treating people fairly uh, is uh, going to hold on to them. So if you've got great bosses, great managers, great leaders, uh, and you're paying fairly, uh, that's at least half the battle. Outstanding. And Tom, we've talked a lot of, a lot of subjects. Uh, we have not really talked a lot about uh, your uh, business now, uh, president of Stratify. Tell us a little bit about Stratify before we uh, start closing the door here. Yeah, you bet. Um, I started Stratify because um, as I was finishing my academic career, I felt like, you know, I need an audacious goal in front of me. I, I live in a golf community, but I don't golf. So that's <laughs> uh, but I, I just can't see myself, okay, I'm retiring and now I'm going to golf. So I got to have a big goal in front of me. Uh, and so since I've done consulting uh, for many years and I've, uh, you know, worked on a lot of projects, I've, it just seemed to me that starting a company uh, whose purpose is to help small businesses grow uh, is – what I like to do. So I jumped into that uh, a full speed. I uh, created Stratify as an LLC uh, in Ohio, uh, and but can do work anywhere in the US. Uh, and I've got six great independent contractors or associates that work with me. Uh, we've got affiliates. Uh, mostly what we do is what you know today is called talent management. It de- deals explicitly with Hiring, training, performance and management and compensation. That's, you know, that's the core of what we do. Uh, But we also help companies with respect to things like leadership and teamwork 
uh, in decision making. So if we can't do it, that is, if we don't have, you know, the the bandwidth to deal with whatever it is that's holding a company back from growing, we know who can. Uh, so, yeah, that's, you know, I, I would welcome any of your listeners or anybody else who's, you know, really serious, wants to grow uh, over the rest of 2023 and beyond. Uh, consider Stratify or somebody else. It's, you know, there's other people that can do this, but consider getting some help because uh, there's a lot to know and nobody can do it by themselves. That's a great way. That's a great thing to say there. You can't, we're, we're all great individuals, but you need a team. You always need a team or a village to help you become successful. And I, I think that's a perfect thing to say right there. Uh, so if all the things we talked about, the top three things that you can, uh, tips that you can give the audience to uh, grow and uh, grow their business and maintain an awesome uh, workforce. Yeah. Top three things. Number one, Hire the best people you can afford. Just find the best people that you can possibly find. One thing that distinguishes great entrepreneurs from mediocre ones, the great entrepreneurs are not threatened by somebody who's smarter than they are. They want to be surrounded by the best people they can find. Uh, that's tip one. Tip two, don't skimp on training and development. You know, on-the-job training a lot of times is pretty sloppy. You know, having a more systematic way of saying uh, who needs training, how do we conduct training, and then making sure you evaluate the results, that's key. So hiring, training, uh, and the other part of it is compensation. You know, reward people fairly. Uh, you don't always, maybe you can't always pay um, more than everybody else, but pay as much as you can reasonably afford uh, and you'll have a leg up on your competition in holding on to the great uh, talent in uh, in the applicant pool. Outstanding. Thanks, Tom. And how does someone get in contact with you if they want to just chat with you like we are now or maybe jump in with Stratify? Yeah, that's great. Thanks for asking, Rich. Appreciate it. Yeah, we've got a uh, website. It's a great website, actually. Uh, my son's in digital marketing. And <laughs> so I threw a little business his way. They put together a really good website. It's www.stratify.us. Uh, and uh, my phone number is 380-239-6688. If you go on the Stratify website, there's a little button right at the very top. Uh, get in touch with us. Pulls up Calendly. You'll be on my calendar. Uh, there's a 30-minute uh, uh, session no charge. We just talk about what's going on with your business. Uh, we start digging into uh, what Stratify could do to help. If we can, great. If not, no hard feelings, no pressure, no hard sell. Uh, you know, maybe we can suggest somebody else that can uh, deal with the kinds of issues that you're dealing with. So, uh, yeah, and I invite you to uh, contact us if you think it'd be worthwhile. Outstanding. Uh, Tom, thanks again for taking some of your time to hang out with us, share the story of your dad, and uh, your study on resiliency with veterans. It was a great chat with you tonight. And I look forward to great things from you in the future. Thanks so much, Rich. Really enjoyed it. Outstanding. Have a good night. You too. Thanks for checking us out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website at themisfitnation.com. It's themisfitnation.com to catch up on all of our episodes and also to get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling because we are 